This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. It is a white blaze. It might rip off your skin or dazzle you blind. It's the same shade as his favorite animals, the fish that wander over the deepest floor of the sea. They are pure light. Their bodies pulse, and they call that speaking. God embeds prismatic colors in ice, just as he blesses glass. A fuchsia that aches, a blue that darts, the same gold of the tiger's eye that blinks in a topaz. Only his vision can see the mad castle he builds in every pinprick of snow. But listen to the wind. His howls lacerate the land because he neglected to design a lover worthy of heaven. Why on earth should passion drive us so when God himself can find no one to marry? This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Catherine Vaz about her latest novel, Above the Salt. It's a deeply layered epic novel that opens in 1840 on the Portuguese island of Madeira, from which many families were forced to flee because of violence between Catholic and newly emerging Protestant factions. Much of the community settles in southern Illinois, including Mary and John, who'd met as children, They know they're meant to be together, but the religious fight they escaped follows them. The civil war separates them. Small betrayals keep them apart, and their lives are like one of John's espaliered apple trees spread wide against the sky. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for joining me today. Well, Galit, it's a really a pleasure to be on your show. I've heard such wonderful things about it, and I'm very grateful to Elizabeth Graver for introducing us. What triggered your 15-year journey into the lives of John and Mary? Well, it it does seem like a long time. And in fact, my husband said at one point, you've been saying for years that it's taken you 15 years, so probably you should say 17. Um, I write a lot about the Portuguese in America, the immigration of the Portuguese uh, to various places. And I came across this fascinating story when I was doing a recording at the Library of Congress in the Hispanic Division um, about a group of Portuguese Protestants from Madeira who were adopted, believe it or not, by Illinois, given land and jobs in the 19th century. And it seemed just too good to ignore. So a little investigation brought me to an interview with a John Alves, who was a soldier in the Union Army, but talked about, and it was very moving, falling in love with someone he met and courted in the Lincoln household. So he didn't say what happened when he got back from the war 
And I thought that blank is where an incredible novel and love story and story of America uh, exists. So that was really my start. But of course, a lot of um, missteps along the way. But I'm delighted that Above the Salt has now seen the light of day. Uh, it was a gorgeous novel. Um, so we start. you start out on the island of Madeira off the coast of Portugal. And uh, Serafina Alves is condemned to die. So my question is, wasn't 1843 past the time of the Inquisition? Who was condemning a woman to die for becoming Presbyterian? Well, as as uh, you know, Galit, and I, to our sorrow, we all know that religious conflict is not restricted to any given century. And what happened was a Scottish ministry, uh, excuse me, missionary, arrived on the island of Madeira initially for health reasons related to his wife, and he um, administered medicine to those in need and started to educate men and women, which was unusual, taught them to read the Bible. There's a large English influence in Madeira, as some of you might know. And um, he ran afoul of the church authorities because he was converting them to Presbyterianism. So in a, in a funny way, um, there was a, a kind of a reverse of what happened in America, which was uh, uh, there was sort of an anti a Catholic movement in the 19th century as well. So they were violently driven off the island um, in the mid-19th century and adopted in Illinois. And of course, they were strong abolitionists and the party of Lincoln was happy to welcome them. But it was also an era of American generosity in which these people were, were taken in and given land and opportunities. So the Inquisition, of course, was long over. But as we all know, the reverberations and difficulties, uh, especially in small places of religious conflict, have, you know, one hopes that at one point humanity will, will put a stop to it. But um, alas, this had nothing to do with the Inquisition, which was okay. of the Catholic Church. Yeah. Wow. Um, I didn't know that there'd been a group of Portuguese Protestants who made their way of their home in Southern Illinois. I didn't ever hear that story. Why there? And why? And does the community still exist today? Well, funnily enough, let me start with the answering your the second part of that. Yes, there is still a Madeira Hill in Jacksonville, Illinois. Jacksonville has a still one of the premier uh, institutions to assist the deaf, one for the blind, the indigent. It was a place of great social experiment of uh, trying to create community thinking. There were people, of course, with lots of money, cattle barons and bankers who were philanthropists and believed in the education of, for women and so forth. So yes, and during my research, it was quite fun to go up to someone who had Stephen Govea as his nameplate in a library. And I said, may I ask you a question? Are you a descendant of these people? Uh -huh. 
but the story is not well known even among the Portuguese in America. And the book will be out in Portugal next year. And the editor there told me a lot of us don't know this story at all. Um, but why there? Why Illinois? In in some ways, Illinois was then considered the West. And because it was a prairie town, uh, people were coming because you didn't have to chop down trees to have a homestead. And they were a large voting block of abolitionists. And so, you know, in Illinois was a, a scene of a lot of conflict of Democrats and um, enslavement espousing people coming, pushing up from the South. And so they were a voting block, but also it was a prime example of American generosity. We have the land, um, welcome, you're in need. And the Presbyterian societies brought them in. Maria is her name in Madeira, but she becomes Mary in Illinois, and yes. she and her father work as gardeners for Edward Moore, who's a, a, a wonderful character. Mary says, we work hard, but we're from a race of wishbones in the land of backbones. Where does that phrase come from, and does it describe the Madeira folks? Um, I would say that it was, as with many, many immigrant groups to America, they were known for being really hard workers, not afraid of physical labor. A lot of them were physical laborers. Um, the This is, I guess, what you'd call an Easter egg. I have a dear friend, the historian Ellen Taylor, who has that plaque in his cabin in Maine. And our joke is that because I have a Portuguese American background, I'm more of a wishbone, and he is from Maine and is from the land of backbones. Uh, so that is actually an Easter egg to that plaque. But I think it also applies because um, the, you know, the Portuguese uh, cultural swim of sensory appreciation, I think, adopted or adapted to the American hard-driving, hard-working environment as well. So that was kind of a funny personal thing that I think applied. And it's also an homage to my father, who was um, a magical gardener, you know, as many uh -huh. from the Azores are. So that was a tribute to him as well. He just was a spectacular, talented gardener. I mean, almost to a magical degree. So that was wow. my this episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Because gardening is has like it's like another character in the book. There you you speak about it lovingly, and there's kind of magical aura to it. Can you say more? Well, um, I, you know, I can again. It's my father's ability to, um, as many people in the Azores are brilliant gardeners, for, and it's very lush and baroque. I mean, it's not these hard trimmed. Uh, edges. Um, for example, there was a, an enormous wall of hydrangeas that I once saw in the Azores and baby roses and tea roses had been entwined 
all the way through. There were espaliers were very pop are very popular there. You know the growing of opposite uh, branches to meet in the middle, and the metaphor, of course, is wonderful. Um, but I suppose it was my love for my father and his his artistry with this that I was able to convey in the book. I'm glad it worked. I mean, I'm I'm really glad it worked. And just one brief backtrack, you mentioned the character Edward, and I struggled to get Edward into a deeply sympathetic character who was, I think, it, when you have a love triangle, which is part of the book, of course, um, I think it's important to make all the characters sympathetic, loving with their own flaws. And, you know, I'm glad you liked Edward. Yeah, it's, it's I don't want to tell his story, but it's uh, fascinating, let's just say. Um, I love how you intertwined John and Mary's lives. We, we hear their separate trajectories, and they come together, and they part, and they come together. It's so wonderful. But John is a completely different kind of character. He's very young. He gets interested in sign language and a sound machine. Can you say more about that? Um, yes. You know, it's a funny thing. My first novel also had a, um, a deaf character, and there was some question about whether she'd simply withdrawn from the world or really was deaf. And it, it ended up that Marley Matlin, in fact, optioned that book um, way back when. But I'm fascinated by qualities of sound and music. I am t totally tone deaf myself, so I suppose it... <laughs> tracks me as a mechanism and the whole idea of language of course is creation of sound or the idea of sound so it also seemed to me a perfect marriage with the idea that Jacksonville Illinois where this group of Portuguese um, immigrants ended up was very very um, forward thinking with um, educating women, but also one of the major institutions for the deaf was there. And I thought a boy who had been jailed with his mother, afraid of losing her, would be absolutely obsessed, I think, with sound, with gesture, how the body speaks. Sign language is the use of the body to talk. So to me, it worked in, on all these different levels. Um, part of my 15-year voyage to the finish line. However, John had different occupations along the way, none of which really worked. So I was happy that he became interested in sound. And the 19th century was also absolutely exploding with inventions, inventiveness. It was a absolute um, star century for all of that. So I wanted him to be fascinated by that and most people don't um, completely succeed with it. You know, the Marconis or the Einsteins or the, I mean, the people with the big names, there were a lot of other people striving to invent. And so I, I wanted John to be in that gray area. Yeah. How did, uh, okay, let me, let me backtrack. I can understand why this book took 15 years to finish because you've created an entire world of John and Mary's friends and relatives, and then also famous people like Abraham Lincoln, Emily Dickinson, historical events. And then there's the Miracle Berry. What's going on with the Miracle Berry today? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, some readers uh, have posted things like, oh gosh, I didn't realize this was a real thing. I, um, when, when my book of short stories 
Fado and Other Stories came out. It won the Drew Hines Literary um, Literature Prize. And I went to Pittsburgh and I had a free afternoon. I went to the Conservatory of Flowers. And there was something called miracle berries, which of course you can grow in greenhouses, but you need, a, if it's outdoors, it needs to be in a place like Florida. And I was so taken with this thing and this invention, this this idea that magical realism, um, because I grew up with so many stories that seem almost made up or magical, but I thought were real. Um, and so magical realism to me, are real things in the world that are simply extraordinary or that remind us of the magic that exists in real life. So I had this level of knowing this will be in something I do one day. And I had a funny um, visit to a Miracle Berry farm in Florida with my friend Vanessa Garcia down when I went to Miami. Um, but it, it seemed like a really wonderful metaphor for the fact that magical realism and magic in the world and one can include love in that category, um, are real things with taste and you can see them, you can smell them and all the rest. So I was really quite taken with this and I wanted Mary to have an occupation. Um, she would have been a Madeiran girl uh, raised by a father who was forward thinking as my father was. And so I wanted her to have this magical thing that was also real that she turned into a business. Um, in addition to all the famous people and the family, there are also really some uh, fabulous names. How did Benergia Noah or Althanasius Kircher come to have a cameo, come to have cameos in this story? Well, I wanted, um, you know, the, again, the idea of inventiveness or a thriving century um, and the uh, Anthias Kircher, I'm not going to say it right because I don't have the name in front of me. Um, simply, he was someone who was interested in the science of sound. So I thought uh, the book I came across during my research was an artifact I wanted in my own book. Um, it, it helps to have real objects that... Um, I won't give it away, but the book is very special and John loses it when he has to flee the island of Madeira and he promises Mary that he'll return it to her one day. So I'll let readers find out what happens with that. Um, but, you know, I had fun doing the research and and I wanted to only make it just a little I eat, drop of purple dye in the water, not to overwhelm it with facts, but that these were people who lived in a climate of great inventiveness. And, um, you know, Lincoln is such a strong character that there's a main scene with him and a couple mentions, but he's so strong that my editor, Megan Lynch at Flatiron Books, and I decided um, that he should be a strong cameo. Um, I'll tell you a funny story about coming across some of the names that I used for fictionally is I was bent down to tie my shoe at the Prairie Archive bookstore in Springfield, Illinois. And I came eye level with this pamphlet called 1849 Businessmen of Springfield, which doesn't sound like an exciting title, but it was an extremely well-written, funny um, uh, pamphlet about people who at that time and all their names and their occupations. So I had a field day having fun with that one. Mm. There's a side story about one of John's brothers who dreams of inventing the finest perfume in the history of the world. 
Is is that your invention or was there someone like that down in Jacksonville, Illinois? Um, there was not. That is totally my invention. It's a little homage to 100 Years of Solitude and the Little Goldfishes uh-huh. um, that Colonel Arlott of Wendy shuts himself off to make. That's just a tiny little homage, but it's perfume because I wanted all the senses. Um, and that one, scent, is a very difficult one to write about. So um, I wanted to give Rui that um, that occupation. And also, during my research, I met Dr. Lawrence Zettler at Illinois College, who was inventing actual ghost orchid perfume. Um, I am a firm believer that research is not just sitting at your computer. You have to go to a place, you have to meet people, you have to be surprised. I would never have known or guessed that ghost orchids grew on the prairie of Illinois and that someone was in fact getting them, distilling them and making a perfume out of them. And he gave me a vial of the finished product only last year um, at the Royal Horticultural Show in London, which was quite a triumph. So um, that's a little signature in the book. And and the perfume, I hope, pervades the book um, the way sign language and some of these other sensory things do. Also food, the tastes, smells, feelings, music, it all, all the senses. I loved how you uh, had that was an ongoing theme. Um, let's talk a little bit about Edward. I don't want to give away what happens. He's he's not easy, but neither is Mary. Can you say more about him? What did you like about him? Well, to me, he's, um, because my father, of course, was from the Azores and his family is from the Azores. Um, I grew up in California myself. And to me, he was kind of a um, Gatsby from the West, if that makes sense. He can, he, he had a difficult upbringing. Um, He has loss in his own life. He's a different kind of person. I mean, Mary has, I guess, this, the men in her life are either this great passion and trying to figure out where he is in the world. And then there's Edward who knows and is a little more sure-footed. He has money, um, but he's, he's restricted. And so she does this balancing act between the two of them. I think I wanted them to all be very sympathetic. I worked very hard to get the character of Edward in particular right. And I think it's, to me, the inversion of the idea that the men at the time would just keep moving west. And he's someone who was from the west and didn't know where to go. So he he moved um, eastward. So it's the idea that uh, I guess you could say the myth that America is about solid community at the time, if you didn't make it, you'd move on. Of course, growing up in California, we all knew about the gold rush of 1849, and they left behind lots of women in places like Illinois who were known as gold widows or silver, silver widows, of course, because the men would also go to Nevada and work in the silver mines and hope to get uh, strike it rich. Wow. There is so much more to talk about in this book, but I, I, I don't want to give anything else away. I spent two days immersed in the world of, in your world and loved every minute of it. What are you working on next? Um, the, the, highlighted idea is that it's something short and contemporary uh-huh. okay 
Um, and reversal. Yes, it's a total reversal. And it's a who who am I in the world now? Because there's so much happening in the world that is tumultuous. And I'm very pleased to have done historical fiction and this love story and this immigration story of the Portuguese. But this is I'm fascinated by female friendships, what happens mm. to them, what the loss of those feel like. And it's all very hazy in my mind, but short contemporary female friendships and the grief and pain of that. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much for joining me today, Catherine. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too, Galit. And I uh, thank you so, so much. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Catherine Vaz, author of Above the Salt. Hope you have an equally fabulous book to read tonight and every night. Happy reading.